At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I'm Katie. And I'm Jen. This is Either Side Eaters. We are friends who talk food, whether it's across the table or across the Atlantic Ocean. And we answer questions like, why is spaghetti carbonara so good? And what makes it timeless? Oh, so good. So timeless. Coming up in this episode, we'll talk about cucina povera. We'll also chat with the fantastic chef and host of Vice's Counterspace, Sophia Rowe about how the concept of Cucina Povera crosses all geographical borders. I want to talk about dishes born out of necessity, Jen. Mm -hmm. So like, what comes to mind for you when I say a dish born out of necessity? Rice. Ooh. Rice has been in my family and until now, like the bulk filler, the go-to when mm. there's either nothing to eat or uh, you want something quick, you want something to feed as many people as possible. Yes. When I think of a dish born out of necessity in, in terms of my life, I think of when my kitchen is pretty empty and I need to work with what I have like in the pantry. Kitchen potpourri is what I like to call that. Kitchen potpourri. Yes. Th there's something really satisfying of like actually making something so stinking delicious from something that like you would never have gone shopping specifically for like the random thing you put together, but then it ends up being such a winner. That's like the best feeling. Yeah. I feel like an alchemist in the kitchen, just like yes. trying to whip up something gorgeous and it works. Yes. And I have to wonder if sometimes that's how certain viral food trends come about and on that note, let's, uh, let's hear a question. Hey, Katie and Jen, this is Leo. And I want to know, what are your thoughts on viral food trends like the feta pasta that I keep seeing everywhere? Thank you. This has been on my mind almost daily because it looks so good. <laughs> Have you tried it? I have it. So, like, I sent it to you when I was really excited about it because... Like every food chain, I was like, oh, this is cool yes. and easy, right? And it the transformation is quite incredible, especially on video, which I think adds to the virality of it, right? Totally. Um, but then, like, I kept thinking about it. And the more it kept popping up on my feed from uh, different recipes, I kept thinking, you guys, this is a freaking sodium bomb. Mm. Right? And I'm thinking, like... These, the portions that I, I'm used to seeing, and you, and you know, of course, like you decide how much of the pasta you want to eat at one time, but it seems like, oh, here's something to make for you and, and maybe a partner. It's a whole block of feta. Yeah, yeah, feta, yeah. Feta. feta. I, I, I threw in a little flavor there. Yeah, you did. That. I'm going to keep saying that. In feta. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. But as long as it's not 
exploiting a particular ingredient. Although I will say at the, the start of the boom of this trend, the feta pasta, people kept saying this recipe is so popular that Finland ran out of feta. That's so interesting. Interesting. So because of this, there was a shortage of feta because of this trend. It's like, oh, okay, so that makes you really want to I get it. I get it. As long I, I feel like I've set up some rules for myself that's like, okay, if it's a if it's a a helpful tip for a home cook, like something that's useful, if it's not wasteful, right? Mm-hmm. So just like buying a bunch of ingredients and destroying it for no purpose other than to go viral, absolutely not. Like I'm I don't like those videos at all. A friend sent me uh this hack of of like wrapping spaghetti in meat and then uh, the host put nerd candies on the meat and said, like, this is this, <laughs> this adds sweetness. And I'm like, okay, I was kind of with you there. I'm like, and, and I was discussing with my friend Brian, like, yeah, we get it. Right. But then like, when does something become uh, entertaining and educational versus a gimmick? Right. Totally. So that's an interesting thing to think about. And we have lived and learned and Either side eaters, listeners, we are here to bring you the good stuff. (laughs) Not that. (laughs) But also talk about the bad. Yeah. I feel like everyone knows in Italy, food is a work of art. Right. Even if you don't have much, which historically... Italians have not actually had much, and you make do with what you have. You mangia bene, right? You eat mm-hmm. well, regardless of your socioeconomic situation. And so the term that we are going to talk about today, it is cucina povera. And it, you know, literally is talking about a poor kitchen, a way of cooking in a poor person's kitchen. So the basic idea to clarify is that you make the most of what's in season. You make do with what you have. You don't waste. Just think about if you have more things in your kitchen than you know what to do with, that doesn't necessarily equate to a satisfying soul enriching meal. For sure. Yeah. Think on the other hand, then, if you have very little and you're making do with what you have and yet you make a feast, a simple but satisfying feast out of it. And like foods in season, that's automatically going to taste way better than. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny when you like to see it as something as chic, Mm. right? When it's because thinking about the origins you know if you want to say it's humble beginnings yeah right and and there is no more perfect way of describing it like this is very the the most humble beginnings yeah and yet so many of the dishes that came from that and that still are if you think about it they still are cucina povera it is now something is and like in italian restaurants around the world it is thought to be so chic and, and fancy and special. If you think about, I mean, take for instance, carbonara, pasta la carbonara. The ingredients are egg, a hard cheese of some kind, pecorino, parmigiano reggiano, cured pork, and like 
black pepper, basically. You know, a little yeah, salt it's my too. Favorite. It's so stinking good, and you've got these these beautiful coated saucy noodles, and there's so much flavor. But this is these ingredients are are few. They're very simple. You know, meat, if incorporated at all in a cucina povera dish, it is not going to be a big chunk of meat. It's not going to be the star of the show. It will be something small and fatty that adds flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's what that's what carbonara is. And that is like all around the world served in restaurants for in some cases, I don't even want to know how much. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I've been to some places where the plate's like well over 30. And it's like, okay. But like you make it at home and you're like, oh, this is super simple. It's just like you're saying, it's it's simple, few ingredients, but really like and and what I associate a lot of Italian food with is like taking the time Mm. with each ingredient. So like really working in the starch of a water or absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. And and so another great example is panzanella, the stale bread salad, right? And again, you're using stale bread because you are not letting a darn thing go to waste. And bulking up. Yes. Make a huge batch of it. So stale bread, tomatoes, onion, olive oil. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. That's my summer fave. Oh, it's so good. And some basil. I mean, oh, like, yeah. It's so good. I, there, I have, I have a list in front of me of like so many examples of famous Italian dishes that that are complete embodiments of cucina povera. Minestrone is basically, you know, mm. minestra soup. It's like water and basically whatever vegetable, whatever bean you have on hand, throw it in. The reason that I love this so much is. Generally speaking, thankfully, many of us live in abundance. We really mm-hmm. do. And if there's something we want, we can have it delivered to our door. And I just think that the concept of cucina povera is such an important one to remember and to incorporate in our own lives in whatever shape that might take. I noticed in the last year, I really tried to focus on just simplicity, mm. right? And so like, because I didn't want to go to the store as often as I used to, right? Or different types of stores, right? So, the circumstance of COVID made, like, exactly. affected. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. So like meals that I would usually have more ingredients for, I noticed like I would adapt. So if I was making... Uh, there's a Filipino soup called sinigang. It's like this uh, t- usually tamarind sour base soup Ooh. with lots of veg. Maybe there's chicken, pork, or, or shrimp. And I like ran out of um, my like the shortcut. <laughs> and a lot of Filipinos like hey, you've got to make it from scratch. I do the shortcut tamarind packet, like soup base packet from Nor. Yeah, and I would just add that to soups, and that would me like instantly make it sinigang like yes but because i ran out of that and i didn't want to go all the way <laughs> to the my usual market where, where i source this i ended up just seeing what i had on yeah. him and so i would just take lime and add that at the end you know and and i had still a little bit of fish sauce so i would do that i tried worcestershire at one point hmm, just because i that... ran out of fish yeah. sauce it didn't fly by me hmm. <laughs> I, I need s- it to be like super salty totally pungent yeah 
Um, I see I why you tried that? it though, and good on you for trying it because I, I could see that working. Yeah, like so for like you're saying, forcing us to you know, depending on your circumstance, uh, really looking at what you have as not a, l- a lack of, but of how could we how could we make the most out of this? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a there's a a wonderful book that I recently read. It's a cookbook by Anna Maggio. Under the Olive Tree. Basically, it's a cookbook that's full of memories of a childhood in southern Italy, in the region of Puglia, which is where I live. And I actually had the opportunity to interview the author, Anna Maggio, and I I asked her, I was like, so your book, like all of these recipes and every all these memories you have of your mom cooking and how you all got your food, like it really struck me as being so such like the very definition of cucina povera and yet you don't say the words cucina povera anywhere in your cookbook and her response was the whole book is cucina povera but i never used the term because i thought it was too obvious that's interesting because i i don't think i've i maybe heard it once or twice but i've never thought about how things become trendy or things you know, the price tag goes up on certain dishes. You're like, hmm, interesting. I want to bring up one more example from this book, Under the Olive Tree. Because, so like I said, it is very specific to this region of Italy, right? So, so much of the produce she mentions, I'm like, oh my gosh, I see that in my market. And then one of the things she mentioned is called Lempacioni. And I was reading the cookbook and I was like, huh, well, that's like weird. That's like kind of the one thing that I don't see in my market. And obviously it's seasonal. And so some things wouldn't be, but she said, no, in winter, like this was a big thing. I was like, oh, that's weird. Well, guess what? Next time I'm at the market, I see them. They're right in front of me. (laughs) They've been in front of me the entire time, but I never really considered them because they look like, so they're, they're root vegetables. They look like dirty, like just dirt covered small onions, basically. So basically Mm -hmm. I kind of was like, oh, those are just like dirty onions or something. I didn't really know. I didn't really give it any (laughs) thought. And then I read in the book that like where she talks about them and she talks about how to prepare them, you know, you boil them and then you just dress them with a little olive oil and vinegar and, Mm. and it's, yeah. And so I was like, oh my God. So I got some after her book, I prepared it. They're great. They're bitter. Um, but they're, they're really good. And with like a a nice glass of white wine, crisp white wine, absolutely excellent. And I was like, and these are things that are dug up from the ground and the earth still on them. The earth. (laughs) Exactly. And she was saying that in Tuscany, which is a region to the North, a richer region, they also have lampashoni and they don't eat them. Oh, that's interesting. So it was only, it was in Puglia because it is a poorer region that they were like, well, we're going to dig up these ugly, weird, bitter things from the earth and we're <laughs> going to eat them because that's all we've got. And now they're in a cookbook and that now you read cookbook. and then replicated. <laughs> and it, you know what? And it's true. And it's really great. And it's just like, you know what? With a glass of wine, this is like the perfect aperitivo. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, you think about farmer's markets. So, like, where you are, these open-air markets are a common thing, right? Yeah. Compared to, like, in New York, yeah, we have the, the green markets, on um, you know, depending on your neighborhood, certain days of the week, and they're great. I will say my first experience 
going to a farmer's market, I, so it was like high school, mid high school. And I generally like always associated them with expensive oh, food, wow. expensive ingredients, yeah. expensive taste. Cause I would only see certain chefs talk about it mm. and it, the way that it was showcased on TV. And it's like, Oh, that's only available. Farmer's markets are only for a certain group of people. Interesting. It wasn't available for me. But then when I, I think it, I can't remember who it was, but I saw someone of color go and I went, Oh, that was the first time I got interested wow. in visiting a market. Huh. So I asked my mom, I was like, Hey, there's this union square farmer's market. Can we go to the city? <laughs> right. And I went to school in the city, but I never like went to, I'd see them. But I never, I thought like instantly, this is not for me. I'm not welcome here. And, uh, we always got our produce and everything from like the conventional markets around us the chain stores, right? And so my mom's like, of course, let's go. I guess she also was hungry for that open market uh, experience that she has always had in the Philippines. And so uh, we went and it was a fantastic experience. And from then, like, I could never not go to one. But I remember feeling very intimidated. And like, I didn't want to ask questions. And I totally understand that. It makes sense. I'm so glad that, that you have discovered that you can go and that you that's something that you get joy from. Yeah, and especially, I, I, and I'm not sure if this is for all of, of America, but like in New York, they accept food stamps, right? Like mm. it's, and there's more being spoken now about that this is accessible and getting out to communities of like, try this. It is also, if seasonality is such a big part of Cucina Povera, markets are such a great way to embrace the concept of Cucina Povera because it makes sure that you're eating things that are in season versus eating um, strawberry in February. You know, like it, right. it makes you it makes you stay on the, the seasonal thing, which is always kind of nice. But so yeah. on the concept of Cucina Povera, there are many ways to look at it. There are many lenses through which to view it. And I'm excited to talk to our guest today. Uh, Sophia Rowe. Yes. I don't know if you, you've seen her videos. A lot of her content talks about like, let's take away the stigma of using food that's preserved in terms of like frozen or canned and, and have that help with food insecurity, right? And not shun it, not shame it. Uh, because a lot of it is good quality and yeah. captured and and bottled up or jarred or freeze or frozen at the peak of its nutritional value. Um, so I'm really excited to hear. Yeah, her thoughts on- that's great. All right, let's let's talk to her. Today's guest is a powerhouse of food and wellness access, inclusivity, and food and welfare advocacy. Sophia Rowe. She's an NYC-based chef, host of the series Counterspace on Vice, co-host of the podcast Pillow Talk Sessions, and she's the self-proclaimed food and feelings lady who's all about making affordable, healthy food, OG Cucina Povera, uh, something to take pride in. As you know, I am a huge fan of you and everything you do, every little thing. Uh, but one of my most favorite videos of yours is one where you prepared a whole holiday meal just using 
canned and frozen foods. And I appreciated it so much because of your messaging on destigmatizing the cooking of canned and frozen foods because it's out of necessity for so many people who are struggling with food insecurity and that there should be no shame in it. So that's why we're so excited to have you as our guest today. You are truly a powerful, beautiful voice for the people. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. I also equal obsession with you. So <laughs> like, you don't even know, like when I, when I got your email, I was like, oh, I just like texted my assistant, Danny. I was like, guess who just emailed me? Like, you don't even know. So like, <laughs> real respect, real love you. And yeah, the whole idea of canned and frozen food, you know, it's, I, I have, this is a bigger conversation too, with like what we see in sort of food media how we see things, food, um, food critiques, food critics, even the way that we that that we that we watch and take in food shows, like a lot of it feels not accessible. And I've noticed that even with food programming out there, a lot of times these shows make people like, I can't do that, so I'll just appreciate it. But it's, you know, it we there the bar is set really high for something as simple as eating and cooking and food. The bar is just set so incredibly high. It just feels so unattainable. While I think that stuff's remarkable, I think the chef's table of it all is really great. At the end of the day, we need to let people know like, hey, this is something that you can do. I feel like you hit on something really interesting and important of like food as entertainment versus food as the sustenance that it is. And that those lines get super blurred like really, really easily. But first, I just want to ask you like, are you familiar with the term cucina povera? I actually am. This sort of idea of like poor cooking and it's like sort of a no waste sort of concept and idea. I understand that, but I feel like I I don't love the word poor. Also like what is poor? What I don't it's like a, a relative. It's another one of those ethical good bad things. You know, like you can have lots of money and still be very poor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and so I don't love, I understand it as a concept, but I am sort of like a word person. So I, uh, you know, as a kid, I was very poor, but I was a pretty happy little girl by myself. And so like, I don't like to look at myself as poor. I don't like to use that word, you know, especially as someone who's already like an oppressed person. Mm -hmm. So I'm always doing my, doing what I can to like, this isn't poor cooking. This isn't poor food. This is actually, um, filled with tons of value and filled with yeah. tons of ancestry and tons of golden and tons of richness. Life-sustaining. Yes. Even when we're talking about like enslaved cooking or enslaved people, like I don't feel like you can have a conversation about food in America without talking about Black people, TBH. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, the, even that idea of like the poor cuts of meat or poor folks, like some of that is the most rich in culture, rich, delicious food. Like you could call like bone broth poor food, but like it does not taste poor. Right. You know what well, I mean? Yeah. Well, I think I think you're right to put so much emphasis on the words that we use to describe things. Yeah. And also like the the um how ironic it is that cucina povera is what it's called, like poor cooking, poor food that has then been like elevated to like a trendy thing though. Crazy. And even not, not only restaurants, but, and I, I spoke to you, Katie, about this, about uh, accessibility to fresh ingredients, like in farmer's markets, ah. I grew up thinking that wasn't for me. 
I yes. grew up thinking, oh, that's only for fancy snobby chefs. And that if I went there, I would be turned away. And so yes. it took me years to finally get there, mm-hmm. almost like high school into college is when yeah. I was like, oh, I could shop here too. It's Absolutely. fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you've talked about your, are you still in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn? Yeah. Still, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. So you've been there and you've talked about how you don't have access to a great farmer's market in your neighborhood that you have to get on a couple different trains to get into the middle of Manhattan in order to get a good, a good fresh seasonal thing. And seasonality is a huge part of this concept yes. of Cucina Povera. Um, how, how would you relate that seasonality, farmer's markets, all of that to your experience um, as a kid, which from what I can tell, you're clearly inspired by the work that you do. And mm-hmm. I just, and I would love to hear more about your experience as a kid and foster homes and how that inspires you. Yeah, I mean, there are a few places in Bed-Stuy if you know about them, you know, there's a few <laughs> little spots, but you're not, it's nothing like a Union Square. It's nothing like what they got in Fort Greene. It's nothing like what they got in, the, you know, the areas that are more gentrified, aka where there's just white people, um, <laughs> more of them. And, uh, you know, the, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged in that I have the ability to like of my own two feet and I can walk and get on the train. And I, I have, I, I have the privilege of like affording a Metro card swipe or three to be able to get myself to those places. Um, you know, like my, my childhood experiences were pretty clear as a kid. I just was like, I got the free lunch and then you see like my free lunch versus like the kids who, who pay for their lunch and what those look like, you know? And I saw as a really like young person, like some people have access to good stuff and some people don't. That's weird. Why is that? You know, where does this come from? I mean, I remember being in middle school and also seeing too this, I, I was fascinated with like why things come from where they come from. I am in Florida and I'm watching the lunch woman who was very sweet, by the way, unload this truck with oranges and citruses that were coming from Mexico. I remember thinking, that's weird. I got like orange trees in my backyard. We living out here in Florida. What is it? Mexico, ma'am. You know, like I remember just being like, what, Uh huh? So I was always kind of a kid that was really like interested in like where things come from. Why do they come? Why is that? You know, why do I not have what this kid has, you know? And uh, what is, why is money the, the sort of conversation there? Like, oh, this person has more money than me, so they have better food? That's weird, because we all need food, right, to live. So even as a really young person, that was something that I really majorly, majorly connected with. I didn't want to be, like, it wasn't like I was trying to be a chef. I was definitely fascinated with great chefs of the world. I remember that show, like, I mean, it was all like, we didn't have cable. I would watch it. It was all like fuzzy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. PBS. <laughs> uh, so I was always fascinated with food, but I never saw myself there, right? I didn't see anyone that looked like me. I didn't see anyone that I related to. Um, still kind of don't. A little bit. It's a little bit better. I just don't relate to the big dinner, the holiday. I don't, I just, I never will. It's never going to be like why food is important to me. Like I remember going to bed, rumble tummy, like I'm hungry, you know, like that's real. And more people now are experiencing it in the past year than in the past 50 years. Families that previously had never experienced hunger or any manner of food insecurity are experiencing it. And so it's really important for me to let these people know, even in this food insecure hunger state, 
you might only have, you might be standing in a food line, you, you know, you might be just have rice and some canned food. I promise you, we gonna make you some, some, some bomb shit. We can do that. We really can. It's like fuck Michelin, whatever. We can make risotto with jasmine rice. I promise. Yes. <laughs> it does, it it does work. It, it does, does work. work. <laughs> we can do this. You know, might not be a turkey for Thanksgiving, <laughs> but it's it'll be scrumptious. You know, and I'll, we'll, we can work that out for you. And I just want people to know that you can have that quality of meal with eight ingredients and still really enjoy it with your family and have something very, very memorable. Like that is a very sexy idea to me. I just, I, as a kid, I want to belong. I want to belong at the cool table, you know? And I just want everybody to know that like food, food shouldn't have that, right? And we making your own table looks like elevating jasmine rice. <laughs> you know, like that's like what it looks like sometimes. Was it a hard pitch? Did you pitch the show Counterspace to Vice? Actually, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pitch them. It was their idea. Vice was very just like, this is, we need to do this. Like, Global supply chains have been affected by this pandemic so so intensely, and it's a pandemic. So, like you know, they I don't even I still don't even know how we did that, but we did. <laughs> you pulled it off. You pulled it off. We did. Um, Sophia Rowe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and you all can follow her on Instagram at Sophia underscore Rowe, and just keep up with all the awesome stuff she's up to. You know, Sophia has been called a seasoned optimist, and, and I see why, because I feel good. Like, I feel that something actually can be done about the system that we're all working in. I loved talking with her about how good food is just good food, period, right? And and labeling things accurately and being being aware of the words that we use. You know, it really makes me realize that it is one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves, our body and our mental well-being, too. Yeah, good food. You know me, Katie. Good food means good poops. <laughs> and on that note, uh, if you all like the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. You can also drop us a question using the link in the show notes. And in the meantime, you can see what we're up to by following us on Instagram at Jen Eats Life. She will not be on the toilet when you check out her. her you her know stories. that's it. That's a lie. <laughs> and I am at Q Katie. And a special thanks to the musician who wrote and performed this theme song, Brian Quinn. Hey, yo, that's my brother. Um, you can follow him on Instagram at BQ Funk. <laughs> <laughs>